Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Alpha. I'm Andrew. And you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. On today's episode, we discuss the fallout from Rishi Sunak's spring statement plus Partygate. And you ask us, will Jamie Wallace coming out as trans change the tone of the political debate about trans rights? So Anush is on holiday this week, so I'm very pleased to be joined by Andrew Marr, our political editor. Andrew, I know you've been on the podcast before, but it's our first time appearing together. So welcome. Thank you very much. It's exciting. We're in this very strange basement bar, aren't we? We're in the Red Lion, uh, where all the, the Westminster gossip happens. Yeah, so nice to be recording here. This is basically our first chance to really debrief after the spring statement. Anush and I recorded a sort of snap verdict right after the mm. statement, but a lot has happened in the week since. So, Andrew, I'm wondering what you make of this idea that the week that Rishi Sunak's hopes of ever becoming prime minister were fatally dashed. In short, yes. I've been covering budgets and spring statements and autumn statements and all of that since 1984. And I don't remember one landing quite this badly, quite this fast. He always used to say, a budget which lands well on the day looks really bad a week later. Mm -hmm. And this is unique because it landed very badly on the day and a week later and a day later and a few days later, it was still as bad. Mm. And it's interesting, we can talk about how bad that reaction was as well. Mm. But I think what's interesting is that a, it seemed to take the Treasury and maybe even Number 10 by surprise because the individual policies polled, the individual policies that they announced had polled quite well. It's more what was missing from it that went down so badly. He should be surprised that they were surprised because mm. it was very obvious ahead of the statement yeah. the scale of the economic challenge facing the country and particularly lower income families. Um, you look at the galloping inflation and inflation is not the same for everybody always. It depends where it is. And it's, this is particularly fuel inflation, so heating inflation, car driving inflation and food inflation, which is going to be a really big story, I think, in the weeks ahead. And that's the kind of thing that hits the poorest of families particularly hard. Now, you know, MPs knew this, backbenchers knew this, everyone was talking about it. It was in the newspapers and it was almost as if the Treasury had closed themselves off and gone in a tiny, clever, tight little huddle in a basement and hadn't been watching the rest of the world. Regular listeners will remember that even a few weeks before the statement, people around Rishi Sunak were saying, 
look, public expectations are too high after the furlough scheme. This is, a, you know, there are global inflationary pressures. There's not very much that we can do. People are going to be disappointed. The UK economy is very exposed by these Russian sanctions and there's very little we can do to protect people. And speaking to Labour people, they were saying they're just rolling the pitch. There's no way, given everything you were saying, given the pain that families are going to be facing in the coming months, there's no way they'll pull something out of the bag. And then actually, even though they had the odd thing, like an income tax cut right before the next election, there wasn't really anything there, just a fuel duty cut that... Barely, barely scratches yeah. the surface. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think this, this is partly just the way politics works. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that Rishi knew before this was that a huge number of his backbenchers and his most vociferous critics inside the Tory party, on the right of the party and on the left of the party, all hated the national insurance rise, partly because they thought it was just going to be swallowed up by the NHS and nobody would really notice it, and partly because it was yet another tax rise. And this is the highest taxing government in terms of total tax cake since the 1940s. And so he's aware that his backbenchers hate that. He's also aware that he keeps saying he's a tax-cutting and a low-tax chancellor, mm. and just everyone looks at what he's done and thinks, no, you're not. And so he focused on the NI problem. And he dealt with that by the threshold move, which took an awful lot of people out of that national insurance increase. And in very, very narrow terms, looking at the Tory backbenchers and what they'd been saying in specific terms to him, that might seem quite clever. Mm. Except that it left three and a half million families worse off right at the bottom of the heap. And if you look at the actual people who are going to be in real trouble in the next few months, it didn't help them at all. And that wasn't clever. And on your show yesterday, you had Ian Duncan Smith making the case that actually, as you say, it's the people on benefits who haven't yeah. benefited from this spring statement and, that, and those are the people who really needed the help. Ian Duncan Smith's problem is that he wears a very distinctive brown kind of Homburg hat. And so you always you can spot him for a long time. So I spotted him in the street and I grabbed him and I persuaded him to come on the show to talk about um, he's made a big change on Hong Kong judges. But we got him onto the economy and it was really interesting. He was saying that actually by far the most intelligent thing to have done in this spring statement would have been to uprate universal credit to cover some of the or all of the inflationary rise. Mm because that's limited to 3%, because when it's pegged originally, and its inflation is going to be heading towards 8%. And he said, that that's the clever thing to do. We're heading towards stagflation. We're in real trouble in this economy. If you put the money into universal credit, virtually every pound you put in will come straight back. It'll be spent in the economy, because that's what people need to do with it. And therefore, you get the maximum economic uplift from that. And that was the clever thing to do. And he came quite close to saying that Rishi Sunak had made a really serious error. He mm. didn't use those words. But he was well aware the government will not have been listening to that interview from a former Tory leader, and they will not have liked what they heard. It's interesting as well what you were saying, that really Rishi Sunak was focused on addressing that big problem that he has over the national insurance increase, which is so unpopular with the Tory backbenches. But then he, you know, raised that threshold to save some people from it. And my impression, actually, right after the statement among Tory backbenchers was that they had been so focused on that that a lot of them didn't see how badly the whole statement was going to land. I wasn't sure if people were just spinning me or not. But, you know, speaking to people who are often quite critical of this government and quite happy to do so they were saying you know i'm really happy with that mm. fuel t- fuel gd cut great but really that threshold increase is so important like that lifts so many people out of this tax increase so i actually wonder i don't know what your impression was i wonder if 
Tory backbenchers were so focused on that that it took a lot of them a while also to realise how badly the whole package was going to land? I think a bit of that. I think a bit. Let's try really hard to be fair to Rishi Sunak. He knows there's this political problem. He tries to resolve it. And backbenchers are immediately pleased. There may be a bit of quite cynical politics here, of course, Arthur, because the people at the bottom of the heap much less likely to vote Conservative and this NI threshold change will help a lot of, as it were, middle-income families. They will not have to pay the NI increase they were going to have to pay and maybe those are the voters that the Conservatives most want to hold in ahead of the, the, the forthcoming local elections. So there might have been a bit of slightly cynical politics there as well. But I think everybody missed the, the big picture and that is, a, as we started off by saying, that is a genuine mystery because it's not as if the country hadn't noticed what was happening. Mm. I think people looked at what Rishi Sunak had done during the pandemic and they thought, OK, in theory, he is an orthodox, Thatcherite, monetarist chancellor with fairly rigid views. But he's really, really flexible. He's imaginative. He did things that nobody thought a Conservative government would do during the pandemic. And therefore, one way or another, he's going to do it again. And he absolutely didn't. He could have issued some kind of bonds to, to raise money and increase spending because of the crisis that we're in. And he didn't. It was a very orthodox thing. And I think the final big failure we haven't talked about was the promise of a tax cut in mm. 2024. A modest 1p off income tax in 2024. If you're going to pull a rabbit out of a hat, as I've said before, make sure it's actually a live, twitching, warm <laughs> bunny. Not the promise of a bunny, a kind of hologram bunny in two years to mm. come, because that satisfies nobody. Mm. Yeah. And do you get any electoral benefit from that if you've pre-announced it? I think minimal electoral benefit and also that there's a simple logical problem that you start off the spring statement by saying we're in very dark and difficult times, very unpredictable times. We have no idea what's going to happen to the economy. We don't really know what's going to happen to inflation. But hey, presto, I happen to know that in two years time I'll be able to give you a tax cut. It just doesn't add up. It just doesn't make sense. And I suppose that the speculation from some of his Tory colleagues has been that that was really just to tie the hands of the government, that once you've announced or you're a bit more committed to making spending decisions that align with that to, to make sure that he actually is able to deliver it. The, there may yeah. have been a little bit of him who thought, well, in two years' time, who's going to be Prime Minister? It might be yeah. Rishi Sunak, and therefore it's Rishi Sunak's tax cut at the <laughs> crucial time. It's not Boris Johnson's tax cut. He can't have it. I'm going mm. to leave him swinging for a bit. Relations, I think it's fair to say, between Number 10 and the Treasury are not warm. And we talked a bit before on this podcast about Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson being locked in a kind of down of death but it was the other way around for a while that Boris Johnson was the person who was doing very badly in the polls and Rishi Sunak there was so much speculation over whether he would move against Boris Johnson and he fatally did and then was propping him up and doing himself damage in the process now it's the other way around that Boris Johnson I think for all that he's full of bluster, I think there were points where he felt a little bit uncomfortable defending Rishi Sunak's announcements in the spring statement and wishing that he had a different package of measures to defend. Yes, he was in wild, unchained form this week, Boris Johnson, in Prime Minister's <laughs> questions. It was not an edifying, or to my mind, particularly pleasing prospect, but he was waving his arms around and shouting. And when Keir Starmer was trying to drive a wedge between him and Rishi Sunak, he was playing that game. He immediately defended him by saying that this was the, the biggest tax cut for 25 years, mm -hmm. which, if you look at the overall mm -hmm. tax take, is simply not yeah. true. Andrew Moore liberated. <laughs> it was interesting as well that he, the way he did that, because he was, if you went and looked back 
he got away with that because he was talking about the fuel duty cut. So it's the biggest mm. tax cut to, to that specific tax in a very long time. But obviously the tax burden, as you were saying, at its highest in about 70 years. And for all that this figure that Labour have been hammering home that for every six pounds um, of taxes that the Chancellor is taking away, um, they're only giving one pound back. back. And I think and that figure comes from the Office of Budget Responsibility, the government's own body that it set up, the OBR. And we read this morning that Rishi Sunak really hates the OBR and wishes it wasn't there. And mm. now we know why. So we also, it's funny that this is secondary when this story was absolutely dominating months ago. Mm. We also had a development on Partygate this week, didn't we? It was a bit of a damp squib in the end. About 20 officials from within number 10 have been issued with fines. But we know that Boris Johnson wasn't one of them and we don't know exactly who who they were. It puts, when you drill into the details, not great for Boris Johnson, but it hasn't been as devastating as it might have been? Yes, we have to remember this is part one of the end game. There are almost certainly more fines to come and they may very well include both Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. We don't know yet. And then immediately after that, we get the full unexpurgated Sue Gray report. So there is a lot of more detail to come. And in life, in journalism, one occasionally says the wrong thing or uses the wrong word. And I fatally described the idea that he was going to go over Partygate in the middle of the war as quaint. And a lot of people are giving me a serious kicking for that. I completely get it. and I understand it was the wrong word to use. But there is a sense inside the Tory party, which is what I was trying to really reflect, that they think in this situation, he's kind of invulnerable as long as the war goes on. But there's a really interesting question here is, as it were, what is the war? Mm -hmm. If the war becomes frozen into a kind of stalemate situation for months and months and months, it drifts away from the headlines a bit. And however often uh, Boris Johnson phones President Zelensky and then releases the fact that he's phoned President Zelensky again, that kind of ceases to have the salience it has right at the moment. And so I do think that this is dangerous for him. Uh, I think I said before, maybe on the previous podcast, that I buried my father on the same day as one of those parties. And there were six of us standing around the grave uh, outside the locked church. And I am still quietly boiling with anger about that. And I think up and down the country, there are a lot of people who feel the same way still. Now, the Conservative Party has taken a kind of gamble to give Boris Johnson, for the time being, a free pass. And you hear that even from people who are publicly calling for him to go before, like David Davis and Roger Gale and so on. And I wonder if they have fatally miscalculated, because if he's got a free pass for the time being, and if he gets through those May elections, which seems likely, then they will always find, the party will always find another reason not to go for him. It'll be delayed and delayed and delayed, and then the general election will be hoving into sight, and he will be facing the country in a general election. And if any sense of that anger is still bubbling around the country, that may be a huge Tory miscalculation. Wait and see. Hello, it's Alva here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. At the moment, you can subscribe from £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. I'm Andrew Marr. And I'm Alva Ray. We'd like to invite you to join us at the first New Statesman Politics Live Conference on Tuesday the 28th of June, right at the heart of the action in Westminster. 
This new flagship conference will showcase the best of the New Statesman's political coverage with a range of engaging events from panels and live interviews to speeches and debates, plus a special live recording of the New Statesman podcast. We'll hear from some of the biggest names in British politics on the most important issues facing the UK. Speakers will include the Secretary of State for Defence, Ben Wallace, discussing national security, and Lisa Nandy, who will be talking on issues of levelling up and the so-called Red Wall for Labour. You'll be in good company too, with an audience of leaders from industry, politics, journalism and the universities. We'll grapple with the most pressing policy questions facing the UK today. If you'd like to join us, please register using the link in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. I'm delighted I made Andrew do that. So today's question is from Nick, who sent this in over Twitter. Thank you for um, messaging in. This is about Jamie Wallace, the Conservative MP for Bridge End, who came out as trans in a statement yesterday. Um, A historic first, first trans MP. Nick has said, pretty obvious you ask us question, but how do you think this will, if at all, change the nature of the debate around trans issues in the UK? Andrew, what do you think? I think that if you're in a room discussing trans issues and there is someone in the room who is trans, it changes the nature of the conversation. And I think, as it were, in the political centre in in Parliament, having somebody who is trans will change the nature of the way people talk. And so it will have an immediate effect. Boris Johnson, classically, Boris Johnson made a kind of trans joke at the beginning of his speech at the, the party for Tory MPs this week on the very day, or just ahead of, the, of this announcement. And I think Jamie Wallace says that he is not trans, but he wants to be. He's mm. still using he, his pronouns. But nonetheless, it was a huge moment. And I think in a very good way, some of the kind of more abusive, cruel, thoughtless language around this will will bleed out of the conversation as a result of this. It really is a very big moment. Interesting, going back to the the 80s and the 90s, the party which had most MPs coming out as gay was the Tory party. Mm. The party which had most women in senior positions and then prime minister and so forth was the Tory party. And now the party with the first trans MP is the Tory party. Rather interesting for the left. Oh, it's so interesting. As you say, it did immediately shift the tone of this kind of Mm. thing. We saw a very respectful nod to that announcement from Boris Johnson at the beginning of Prime Minister's Questions and then again... Ian Blackford did the same, didn't he? And Keir Starmer. So immediate support from across the house, really. No one really saying anything critical. I think especially because Jamie Wallace talked about some quite difficult personal things Mm. in that statement. But I'm someone who's really interested in the the so-called trans debate in the UK. And I wonder how much this will really change it. Just because you can see that Jamie Wallace 
really didn't want to be in this position mm-hmm. that actually the the really sad thing about this statement same as with a lot of gay MPs in the 20th century a lot of them didn't really come out of their own volition but because they were under pressure from yes I, I think he was being blackmailed wasn't he yeah so he's so really he didn't really do this of his own free will and has been clearly having a very difficult time mm. personally mm. so for all of this is a sort of a great historic moment for the trans community to have the first MP who has said that they are trans mm. it's it's a sort of it's a sad one too and I think that Jamie Wallace probably doesn't necessarily want to take up the mantle of being this mm. new spokesperson mm. for trans rights as you say he issued a statement about his pronouns there were lots of questions after he said that he's mm. trans or I want to be was the phrase people were saying should we refer to you as, as she her now or they them and he's sticking with he him And I thought it was interesting in his statement he said that he hadn't really intended to... to Essentially, he hadn't he, intended to... He wanted to, to wait until he was over with politics. He wanted to yeah. basically retired from politics. Yeah. Who knows how long that would have and, been. And you, I, I don't blame him. Who would want to, to go through transition in the public eye when there's a, mm. you know, a really heated climate around trans rights at the moment? So I, it's it's not the sort of the big, bold moment that it maybe could have been. Mm. And there was a sad part of Jamie Wallace's statement where he said, I'm not okay. And I think for all the... There would be a lot of interest if he wanted to do a lot of media on this mm. and talk very publicly about trans rights and that debate with a, with a lot of authority. I just get the impression that he won't want that won't to. Happen. Yeah. Mm. I think the, the other question you raised earlier on, Alva, which is really interesting, is what it does to the tone of the political debate going yeah. forward. Because before this, it seemed to be pretty clear to me that Boris Johnson, the Conservative Party, had decided to, in the loaded phrase, weaponize a lot of the the woke debate and in particular the trans debate and that they've been looking for a long time for a way to go at Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer in so many ways appears conventional and straight and you know family man and all the rest it's quite difficult to find a way in to attack him and they thought this was going to be the way to attack him because Labour's position this as I understand it, is that they want to make self-ID easier and that's that's where they're going and the Conservatives had seen this as a way of bringing a big chunk of Middle England back to them on this issue and I wonder if they'll be able to do it in the same way it's been very interesting how hard Keir Starmer and other senior people in the top of the Labour Party have found to answer those direct questions about what a woman is and all the rest of it and I do think despite this extraordinary historic moment they're going to have to find better forms of words to stick to or they're going to be tortured all the way to the election about it. And that's what I'm writing a long read on for this weekend, Saturday read. So how Labour can tackle the, these questions about trans rights that keep and everybody's going to be gripped by your conclusions. Alva. <laughs> We're all waiting to hear that. Yeah, well, we'll have to leave it there. But that was such an interesting conversation, Andrew. I've really enjoyed it, Alva, particularly sitting in this extraordinary kind of ancient basement in a very, very old Westminster pub, where you can more or less see the bloodstains from destroyed political careers back in the 1880s and the place where Gladstone was lamped by Disraeli. It's, a, it's an extraordinary place to be having a conversation. It's been great fun, thanks. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and our political editor, Andrew Marr. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. Do please leave us a nice review and subscribe.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.